1 John, verse 5 through 10. Walking in the light. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. We're in the middle of, uh, we just started last week, a series, uh, Know That You Know God. To know that you know God is, is heaven on earth. And uh, that assurance is, is so sweet. And so we're, st- we're studying through 1 John, and we've now come to, we kind of laid the foundation of, of what it means to have fellowship with God, intimacy with God last week. And now we kind of build on that foundation, and we're going to talk about, we head into a section that talks about conditions for fellowship. And the first condition we're going to look at is walk in the light. And it's based on 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll be going back to it, di- dissecting those verses. But let me summarize what we talked about last weekend. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. There is nothing on this planet that can satisfy you like God can satisfy you through his son, Jesus Christ. And that intimacy with God is a is a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth between you and God. So there should be those moments when, when he comforts you, but also maybe he convicts you too. That's that truth. He speaks to our hearts. And then there should be those moments where you're just overwhelmed by his love. That you, you don't just know that he loves you, but you experience his love. And then there should be also, along with those moments, where you share your love with God. God, I love you. I adore you. I need you. And you also speak truth to him. You share your heart to him. And, uh, and so that's part of that. That's intimacy with God is mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. Intimacy with God will give you a fullness of joy that you, you won't be able to keep to yourself. You're going to want to share it with everybody. It just overwhelms you. It overflows. That's what we saw in the first uh, four verses. Now, if all of that is true, then why don't we experience more of that, that fullness of joy as a byproduct of intimacy with God? I don't know if you're like me, but I don't experience that near enough. And uh, anybody like me? You don't experience that near enough? Okay, the rest of you do, okay? No? You're not even on the chart? Is that what you're saying? And so if all of that is true, then why don't we experience more of that? Well, the answer is that there are things that can block or even strangle our intimacy with God. And, uh, and so take a look at your sermon notes here. This is part of the intro. To walk in the light, 
So this is a condition for fellowship with God or intimacy with God. To walk in the light is a condition of intimacy with God, not a means to intimacy with God. We've already established we have intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. Talked about that in the first uh, four verses. So it's not... It's not a way to attain, walking in the light is not a way to attain intimacy with God, but to maintain intimacy with God. In fact, take a look at the next thought on your notes. Intimacy with God is a blood-bought gift from God. So it's a gift from God, but to maintain and grow that intimacy with God, you need to walk in the light. In fact, as it says in this text, to walk in the light is a sign that you really do have intimacy with God. So to walk in the light is to, uh, is to really show, to reveal that you really do have intimacy with God. Now, my wife and I have been legally married for about 10 years. And... Uh, Okay, this side got it. This other side still baffled. For about, okay, for 42 years, we've been legally married. Now, let's just say uh, we, get, we, have, we got the piece of paper that says we're married. But what if I were to uh, offend her, which I never do? Why do you guys laugh? Because you doubt it. Well, let's just say I offend her. My offense doesn't break our union, but it breaks our communion. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about here. So there are things that break not our union. Once you're in Christ and you have a relationship with him, that's done. Now, how do you maintain that relationship with him? Well, you've got to walk in the light. You've got to learn what that means to walk in the light. You don't want to be offending God over and over again. In fact, your heart is towards God. You want to honor God. You want to live for his glory. And, uh, and so there is the process, as my wife and I, when, when I offend her, there's a process of reconciliation, confession, apology, repentance, and forgiveness. And the same is true in our relationship with God. And so what we're looking at here, you can see this on your notes, three things you need to know to walk in the light. Three things you need to know to walk in the light and to maintain this relationship with God. First of all, God is light. You can see that. We'll talk about that. The second thing is that God's light exposes our darkness. So if you get close to God, he's going to expose your sin. And then the third thing, thank God for this third statement. It's, it's in our text. God's blood cleanses us from all darkness and sin. So God is light. His light will expose our darkness but praise God, his blood cleanses us from all sin. That's the, the thesis statement. That's the three points that I want to get across here this morning. And so let's, let's look at that. Three things you need to know to walk in the light. The first one is that God is light. That's based on verses 5 through 6. Let me read those. This is the message we have heard from him. So this is not human speculation. It's by di divine revelation. So we heard this from him, God in the flesh, Jesus, and we proclaim to you. In other words, this is a done deal if you really understand what has happened for you. You can live in the reality of this intimacy with God, but you need to maintain that. And he goes on and says that we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we have an intimate relationship with God while we walk in darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. Why didn't he finish that by saying, if we walk in darkness, we lie and do not walk in the light? Because I think walking in the light and practicing the truth are one and the same thing. He's giving us a little further insight into this idea of walking in the light. It's walking, it's practicing the truth. Now, John chooses the word, the word light because, it's, uh, because of its importance to us. How many are here from the 17th Avenue and Bell Road uh, days of, uh, what was that? That was the nightclub days, our nightclub days. Anybody? Show of hands? Okay. Yep, 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 yep. There's a number of you. More, more last night than in this service. Probably be more in the, in the next service. So that's... That's the way that auditorium was set up, that there was a long hallway on the outside of the auditorium that led right on up to the stage. And I was running a little bit late, getting up on stage. Uh, the worship leader was praying, and so I was trying to hightail it up there, so I was running down that hallway. Now, the only problem with this hallway is that the light switch is at the other end of the hallway. And so it was pitch dark in there. But I was hightailing. I was running through that hallway, not realizing that someone had set a chair in the middle of the hallway. And boy, did that hurt. And I'm sure, I, I'm sure that I had a really a, a real positive facial expression when I got up on the stage. Quite the contrary. I was, it, it stunned me really bad. And I got up there real quick and was like, ay, 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 am I bleeding anywhere? It's like, it was one of those things. I desperately needed the light. There was another uh, occasion when uh, we were over there, we'd have to clear the building and because transients would sneak in and then sleep in the back rooms. And so we'd clear the building before we would lock it up. I was back clearing the building one night and it was kind of a maze of rooms that were in the back. I was working my way through these rooms. I come into this dark room, pretty dark except for a little light from the back. And I came into that room, and I looked up, and I was startled. I saw someone looking at me. I was like, oh, took my breath away, and it kind of ran a chill right up my back. You know, you, have you ever have those feelings where it's just like you're overwhelmed, and I'm over there trying to find the, the light switch? I flipped it on, and I was looking into a mirror. Yeah, you guys laugh. I think I wet my pants over that. <laughs> Gee, I was seeing my own facial expression. I freaked myself out. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So what is the main value of light? Based on those stories, what's the main value of light? It helps us to avoid danger and to see where we need to go. And so, so keep that in mind as we work through these notes. Here's the first, uh, first fill-in-the-blank on your notes, and that is God is holy. So when we talk about God is light, when he says God is light, God is holy, perfect, morally pure, absolutely just, and cannot tolerate evil. He's all about the truth. He's holy, therefore he wants us to be holy. And that's found in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. So God is the source and the standard of all truth. And he is truth. Remember what Jesus said in 14.6 of John, I am the way, the truth. You want to know the truth? 
You don't need to stumble through the hallways of life, these dark hallways trying to figure out why, why all this sin, why all this suffering, what's going on, what's the solution? He came to bring the solution. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In other words, he's saying, through me, you can have a relationship with God. So God is holy, perfect, morally pure, absolutely just, cannot tolerate evil. He will help us to avoid danger and lead us where we need to go. Now, in talking about his light, you need to also balance that out with his love. That's the next point on your notes. So God is light, he's truth. You can actually divide 1 John into two major sections. The first section would be this, that God is light, Truth, 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 29. And then the second part would be 1 John chapters 3 through 5, God is love. So God is light, God is love. You need to balance that, have a balanced perspective when it comes to God. Light is that aspect of his nature that demands punishment for sin, Love is that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification. And so, beware of two extremes. And all of us as followers of Christ, all of us as believers can tend to fall into one of these two extremes. In fact, all of us will gravitate towards one more than the other. And the extremes are, are this, legalism and liberalism. And, and I don't mean liberalism, that's not politically. We're talking spiritually, liberalism spiritually. And so uh, legalism would go something like this. This is what they would say. Yes, God is very loving, but in the end, you've got to be good or he won't love you. That's called legalism. That's religion. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not get your act together and God will accept you and bless you. It's not the gospel. That's, that's legalism. It's religion. That's the, one of the extremes that we swing to. And, uh, and so in this extreme, light or law is primary. Love is secondary. God's love is conditional. This is, would be represented in the Bible, you know, that's moralism, it's Phariseeism, it would be the elder brother and the prodigal son's story in Luke 15. Remember the elder brother? He was a lovely guy to hang out with, wasn't he? He was, a, he was bitter, he was angry, he was holier than thou, he was self-righteous, he was very sanctimonious. He was appalled that his brother did what he did, and then he came back, and, and dad accepted him as he, as he did. See, that's a religious attitude, and doesn't, that's a person that does not understand the grace of God, the love part of God. They might, it's, it's doubtful that they really understand the law of God, too, but, but that's part of that. It's law minus love. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is liberalism. It goes like this, you should obey God, but in the end, God loves and accepts everybody. So love is primary, and light or law is secondary. God's love is unconditional. This is relativism. It would be represented in the Bible as through the Sadducees, and this would be the younger brother. This is love minus law, the younger brother and the prodigal son story in Luke 15. So let me ask you this question. It's the next one on your notes. Is intimacy with God conditional or unconditional? You can answer out loud. What do you think? 
It's both. Actually, put yes down on your notes. Intimacy with God, is intimacy with God conditional or unconditional? Yes. And let me explain that. The wonder of the cross, the wonder of the cross is that it both satisfies the justice of God, the light of God, and the love of God. On the cross, both justice, that is the wrath of God upon our sin, and the love of God are both vindicated. They are both demonstrated. They are both expressed completely, and they are both utterly fulfilled. It's it's absolutely breathtaking when you begin to understand that, when it dawns on you, the justice of God and the love of God. It's a recognition, as you hear me say many times, is that I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. That's one part of it. That's the justice of God. That's the light of God. But the love of God says this. It says this. I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. So you need to maintain that balance. You need to have that balance. And so he doesn't, he doesn't ignore our sin and rebellion or relax and compromise his standards. He assumes our sin and amazingly, amazingly sentences himself for our sins. He paid the sin debt to the Father in full. And, uh, and so God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so that we can become what is beyond our wildest dreams, perfect before God and having an intimate relationship with the God of the galaxies. That's ours through Christ Jesus because of what was done for us on the cross. So it satisfied the justice of God, it satisfied the love of God. And so we don't obey God so that he will save us, but we obey him in gratitude because he has saved us. Don't flip that I gotta get my act together, I gotta start obeying God, then some, you know, God will, then God's blessing will be upon me. No, God's blessing is upon you through Jesus Christ. You wanna maintain that, certainly, but you have all the blessing, everything you'll ever need through Christ. So you don't obey him out of like, you're gonna earn it, because that's called, that's actually paganism. It's like when you study, you know, Greek mythology and they're gonna appease the gods to take the heat off so that I'll be able to live a more successful life. Well, that's not Christianity. He's made it possible for, for you to live a successful life and a good life. Through his shed blood, you have access to the throne room of God. It's something that has been done for us. Now. I need to deal with a problem that I see in our culture. I've had Christians even say this to me when when I've talked to them about sin. So they kind of lean more towards the liberal side. And I've heard people say, I just believe in a God of love. No standards. He's your assistant on the road to self-actualization. They didn't actually say the rest of that, but that's what they're saying, okay? 
That's exactly what they're saying. So if God is only loving, then he isn't truly loving. Because immediately you have to ask the question, so he's, all, he's, he's all love, so define for me what love is. We immediately have to go to truth. You have to begin to give them the truth based on what that love is. And believe me, people use that generally and throw it out there, but you start backing them in a corner and ask them, well, what does that mean to really love? Because the Bible gives us a different definition of love. It gives us the true definition of love, not our, our weak, wimpy uh, definition that we have in our culture. And so you can't have love without truth. You have to have both. That's why he, we interact with God in, in love and truth. There's a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth between us and God. And so, so, I mean, imagine that. I just believe in a God of love. Imagine trying to raise a child with only love. What do you think, parents? Would that, would that go over well? Just love. And, um, and, you know, that might seem to work for a while until you have that kid that pops up that defies you, comes out of the womb smoking a cigar and says, make my day. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about there? You got a few of those kids? I think every family needs one of those kids. Every family needs one of those kids because it snaps you back into reality. You're not as good of a parent as you thought you were. This little person is gonna run you ragged. I mean, it's just it's the way it is. So imagine trying to raise a child with only love. No parental authority, no standards or morals or truth. The child will not know which end is up. They're going to have vertigo. And um, that child will grow up and feel like an orphan. And that's abuse. You will not fully understand the love of God until you see the light of God, the holiness and truth of God. See, when we see our dire condition apart from Christ, this is what it means to become a Christian, by the way, you, you begin to see, wow, I am a wreck. <laughs> and when you see that, that's true. That's that you're entering into truth. Yep, you are desperately in need of Christ. So when you see your dire condition and then add to that the magnitude of his provision, that's what brings the indescribable, indestructible joy. You know what I mean when I say indescribable, indestructible joy? It's indescribable. There's moments where you're just so overwhelmed you can't even put it into words. And it's indestructible because there's no amount of success in this world that can give you that joy and there's no amount of suffering in this world that can take that joy from you. And that's a transformation of the heart. That's what God does through his son, Jesus Christ. It's called regeneration. And uh, we become born again and we begin to realize the sin debt. And then we realize, oh my goodness, he's provided all for my sin debt. And now I can have a relationship with him. And it's a gift. It's a blood-bought gift, as I've stated. And so when we see our dire condition, sinful condition, the magnitude of his provision, the cross produces in us indescribable, indestructible joy. You remember the story in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is dining at a Pharisee's house and in walks a, a woman of the city is what she's called. She was a prostitute. And she kneels down and she weeps over Jesus' feet and she washes his feet with her tears and then wipes them with her hair and then pours ointment on his 
feet. And this Pharisee was, he thought, this is despicable. This is horrible. And that's what religious people do. Does he even know who this woman is? And this is what Jesus said, very profound statement. He says, whoever is forgiven much loves much. And I've heard people say, well, that person over there, I can see why they're so excited about their faith because they needed a lot of help. You're delusional if you're saying that. You need as much help as that person does. The Bible levels the playing field by saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whoever's forgiven much, when you realize how much he's forgiven you, man, you love much. You love him. You give your life to him. And not until you you know the size of the debt will you know the size of the payment. And so, God is light. That's the first thing. I said all that to say God is light, okay? Here's the next one. God's light exposes our sin. Now we need to really... Take a look at that. And that's based on verse 7. Listen to what he says. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why would he say that? Why couldn't he just leave it alone and just say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Woo-hoo. But he doesn't. He says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It seems as though he's saying that when we walk in fellowship with Jesus, it's going to expose something, and we're going to desperately need his blood to cleanse us, is what he's saying here. Now, let me ask you this. What happens when we, when we get near God, who is light, who's truth? Well, the light of, of God exposes our sin. And let me give you three examples in the Bible. Isaiah had this experience in Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Job did the same thing, Job 42, 5 through 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I knew about God, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter, in Luke 5, 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, this great catch, uh, a fish, realizing that that's what Jesus said, uh, put your nets on the other side, and they have this great catch of fish. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He, he realized he was in the presence of deity. This is God. And it overwhelmed him. And he recognized his sinfulness. Now, here's what you need to know. So how, do, how are we to respond when our sin is being exposed? We don't do a very good job with this, I, I think, as, as humans. We might maybe do a little better job as Christians unless we're legalist and so, uh, or liberal. And so the difference between legalism and liberalism in Christianity is how they each respond to sin and failure. So, so this would be opportunity to look at, so how do you respond to sin and failure? When you're called on the carpet, somebody points something out in your life, or your circumstances begin to reveal an, an ugliness in your heart that you never thought was there. Oh. So how do you respond to that? Now, what's interesting about legalism, liberalism, and Christianity is that they can all look the same on the outside by going to church, reading their Bible, praying, giving faithfully, and, and being a generally good person. 
but there's something going on in the inside, and it really comes down to how they respond to sin and failure. Legalists who are moralists, it's really someone who gets their confidence, their assurance out of their performance. And so therefore, they swing to these extremes from pride when they are doing well and despair when they are not doing so well. So pride, look at me. If these people would just live more like me, this world would be a better place. You kind of see that in the political realm with both the, the conservatives, the, the hyper-conservatives, and the liberals. Like the, there's almost a sanctimonious, self-righteous, they could just be more like us. And that's, that's legalism. And... Um, low view of, of law, really, because the legalist actually thinks that they can uh, achieve God's blessing through their performance. That's insane. You can't. You can't earn right relationship with God. It's a gift from God. And so, uh, so when they are exposed to be the worst sinner than they thought, legalist, they either respond with pride, and pride sometimes is revealed through our defensiveness and denial and blame shifting. But then when you're finally backed into a corner, it turns from pride to despair and doubting God's love for them. How could God possibly love me? And you're building it on your performance or Christ's performance. And so a moralist runs from God when sin is exposed. I mean, I, I've had people say, uh, I better not even show up to church this week because of the way that I've lived this last couple weeks. Uh, I'm just not going to, what? Is this based on your performance, your relationship with God? Then that's legalism. That's religion. It's not based on your performance. You should be running to church when you have a bad week or even when you have a good week. And so... So that's legalism. Liberalism, relativist, is someone who gets their confidence out of not talking about sin and the wrath of God and the atonement of Christ and only talking about the love of God and being a good person full of love, joy, peace, and social justice, making this world a better place. That's another form of moralism, by the way. And it's, it's as the... As uh, legalism is all law and no love, well, this is all love and no law. And it's also a very low view of the law. It's called antinomianism, anti-law. The law is important. God wrote it down. You can't, you can't achieve uh, your right standing with God, but once you have a right standing with God, you want to obey his law to honor him and to glorify him. And you'll never be able to do it on your own. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit working in you. Your whole life, until you die, you'll be working on that. And, uh, and so they don't even talk about sin, and therefore they have no intimacy with God. You can go to churches here in the valley. They're never going to bring up the sin topic, the atonement of Christ, or the wrath of God. And yet those are biblical, biblical truths that we need to know. A relativist runs from God by refusing to expose sin. 
And so here's the gospel response. Gospel response is the Christian is someone whose confidence is in Christ's performance. A Christian is someone who says, the only reason God accepts me is because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. So it's a combination of both law and love. A Christian whose sin and selfishness are exposed comes to a greater realization that what Jesus did for them on the cross was greater than they had ever thought, giving them an increased appreciation of God's love. So when you're confronted with your sin as a Christian, you just go, oh man, that's right. And uh, I'm so thankful for God's grace. So Christians run to God when their sin is exposed. You see, exposing Uh, And confessing your sin brings greater joy and fellowship is what he's saying here. Now, there's a quote. It's a little bit further down in my notes, but let me bring it up. I think it's a good time for me to bring it up if I can find it. Yes, this is a quote by Charles Spurgeon. And he says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Don't get all upset. I mean, there's, you know, there's times when people come and give me a list of things that's wrong with me in this church. And, and I want to say, that's a short list compared to the list I have, okay? In fact, my wife has even a longer list on me, okay? So is that the best you can do? Come on. You don't know me there very well, do you? And so that's, that's just that's how we re- should respond it's just like, just respond with, with pride or self-denial or defensiveness is, is just totally a bad, bad response. So God is light, in his light, and his light exposes our darkness. But here, this is so sweet, this is good. The third point, God's blood cleanses us from all sin, all darkness, So we need to kind of unpack this a little bit. So next fill in the blank. To deny your sin is self-deception and blasphemy. If we say we, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So my wife and I were leading a uh, couples group in the early days of Desert Breeze, and it was a room all packed out, and we were all sitting around in a big circle, and so we started kind of the group, and this part of the group, to introduce yourself, and just tell us what are some of your big uh, struggles that you have in your marriage relationship right now, and that was an opportunity to maybe get the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in the people's lives if they were honest enough, and most of them were really honest, and they shared, uh, they they shared what they were struggling with until we came to a couple who had been married 21 years and they said this, I don't know why we're even in this group. We have no problems in our marriage. We never have had any problems and uh, we've never fought. And I thought everybody in that room was gonna grab them, throw them in the middle of the room and dogpile them, okay? And I I was going, I wanted to say this, but I didn't. I said, are you delusional? (laughs) If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I've got it all together, by the way. You know that. I'm not messed up like the rest of you. Do you hear me? If you could just start living more like me. Well, see, that's religion. That's a holier-than-thou kind of mindset. No, I struggle, believe me. 
I struggle with sin as much as you do. And that's normal. Christianity says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's where that blasphemy comes in. And I think the first one, he's talking about our sinful nature. He says, if we say we have no sin, and then he says, uh, that's our sinful nature. And the next one, he says, if we say we have not sin, that's sinful choices from our sinful nature. So we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. We are sinners by nature, that's attitude, and by choice, that's our actions. Sin is more than an action, a behavior. It is also an attitude. It's a set of beliefs. And so sin is deeper than bad behavior. And trying to do better isn't a solution. See, we need help that is deeper than education, socialization, politics, self-help, or changes of relationship or location. We need help that goes deeper. That's all behavioral modification. We need heart transformation. This is what I love about the gospel. The gospel and the Christian life is not a morally restrained will, but a supernaturally transformed heart. He changes our heart. And um, that's important. I was talking to Drew Bohannon this uh, last week in our, one of our workout classes. I'm on a class uh, in Speed and Strength University. And uh, I was talking to one of the other gals that was there. My wife was there and she was there. And, and, and others will attend that class with us. And uh, she was talking about how big of a struggle it is uh, after the holidays, eating too much and then putting the brakes on after the holidays. And I said, yeah, I'm right there with you. My brakes aren't working, okay? (laughs) And I I know I need to kind of change my eating habits because I kind of went a little bit crazy during the holidays. And, And especially since it's been so cold here, I mean, cold for us desert rats, okay? And, and so, man, I, I love that comfort food. I don't want to eat anything cold. I want something warm and hot and a lot of bread and all that good stuff. Anyway, I didn't need to go into all that, but uh, <laughs> sorry about that. But, uh, but anyway, we were talking struggle, and I, just, I, was, I was, wasn't preaching to them, but I was preaching to me, and I just said, well, here's the bottom line, is the things we value, we prioritize. The things we prioritize, we practice. So just look at your practices. It's going to show you what you value. So obviously, you don't value eating good. You value not eating good more than eating good, okay? <laughs> it's a matter of value. So you don't, it's not behavioral modification. It's, it's heart transformation. You've got to change your values. And so when we come to Christ, he begins to change our values, our likes and dislikes. He works on our heart. It's not the acts of the will, but it's the loves of the heart that that are most important. He wants to work on the loves of our heart. And so we need to talk a little bit about this. What is the essence of of sin or darkness and evil? And uh, Jeremiah 2.13, let me just summarize that for you, that verse. You can look that up on your own. But this is what he's basically saying. The the prophet is saying to the people uh, that evil or sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for a broken cistern, a broken well. 
So what we do, it's also explained in Romans 1.25, what we do, and the essence of sin is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things over the creator. That's the struggle that we all struggle with. That we, that we look, sin is to look to anyone or anything as more desirable and satisfying than God. And that belief is the cause of all of our behavioral sins. It's the cause of all of our behavioral sins. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives us a list. He says, now the works of the flesh, so walking in darkness, are evident. Sexual immorality, that word means pornea. We get our word uh, pornography from this. And it actually means any sex outside the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. And he goes on, impurity, which is immorality, sensuality, unbridled desires, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he means there, and we'll see this in 1 John, those that practice those things becomes a way of life for them. Because we can all struggle in, in these areas. But are you struggling are you, or are you giving in? And so to deny our sin is self-deception and blasphemy. But to confess, here's your next fill in the blank, to confess your sin will cleanse you and not crush you because of the blood of Christ for you. Oh, that is so sweet. That's based on verse seven and nine. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us, cleanses us. There's, there's something about a shower. I love a good hot shower. Whew, I feel invigorated. Oh, the, the cleansing of that. I can even sleep better at night. It's just there's something about it. And I, it just, there's a cleansing. There's a cleansing that, that takes place. And so uh, verse nine, he says, if we confess our sins, that confess there is an active verb. That's important. I'll talk about it in just a moment. But if we confess our sins, a confession just means to agree with God. When he reveals, when you look in the full-length mirror of God's word and he reveals something in you that's not right, you just agree with him. You say, yep, you're right, God. I need help, please help me with that. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Why would he say just? Why wouldn't he say faithful and merciful? But he doesn't say that, he says faithful and just. You see, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So I don't want justice, I want mercy, but he says just, why would he say just? Because all of your sin, what you deserved, was placed on Jesus. And we get what he deserves. And so God is just because he can't overlook sin. Sin must be judged, but it was for us, in our place, Jesus, on the cross. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I've heard this wrongly taught that it's for unbelievers and once you've confessed your sins you don't have to do that ever again you just live in the reality of the fact that he has forgiven you and that's not what it's saying it's an active verb it's not a one and done 
It's an ongoing working out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. And if you're honest, if you're really honest about your life, you're going to be confessing daily and repenting. It's a daily thing. I mean, there are times my thoughts take off. I worry too much, I get too stressed out, and I'm constantly confessing and repenting and coming back to my Savior. My thoughts, my eyes go in wrong directions. I look too long, maybe, somewhere. I listen to stuff that I shouldn't be listening to. I've got to make those course corrections. Sometimes I don't catch it immediately, but I catch it in route, and then I go, oh, what in the world am I doing? Why am I going that direction? What's going on? So there's an honesty about our lives, and we confess and repent, and oh my goodness, he brings cleansing to our lives. He's wanting wholeness for us. He wants us to be whole, full joy, indescribable, indestructible joy. And so, I mean, why would he have put that in the Lord's Prayer? If it was a one and done, why was that in the Lord's Prayer? He taught his disciples this, how you should pray. Pray like this every day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he goes on, and there's a section in there where it says, and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. Why would he put that in there? Because we need that daily. We need to look at our lives and say, hey, you know what? My attitude towards this person was really bad. It doesn't really reflect the glory of God and, and God's love for me and my, God's love for them. And so you make those course corrections and you admit your sin, you confess it, you agree with God and he brings cleansing and you turn from that and allow him to continue to transform your heart and life and change, change your values. So God's light will expose what you want to hide, not to shame you, but to forgive you and deliver you. He wants to set you free. And so this is, this is not about breaking union, but communion with God. So how does it cleanse us from all sin? Here it is. First, uh, First Peter 2.24, I've been meditating on this verse this last week. This is, a, this is a beautiful verse. It's a gospel verse. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, meaning the cross, so that we would no longer uh, live for sin but live for righteousness, so that we might die to sin and live for right, to righteousness. And he says this, by his wounds you have been healed, past tense. So what is he saying? It's done. It's been paid in full for you. You can either live in the reality of it or not. And so, uh, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the blood of Jesus sets us free from those three things here. The penalty of sin, that's our past sins. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there, is, therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now listen to me. He will never, ever, ever, ever hold your sin against you. He will not condemn you. God does not condemn us in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, so, and oftentimes this is where Christians struggle. I just talked to someone this last week and they were struggling with this because their, their life circumstances are really getting crazy and chaotic and really bad and they started wondering, maybe God's punishing me. I, I, I said, no, he's purifying you. 
Hardship, difficulty, suffering is not punitive if you're a believer. It's purifying. He's wanting to draw your heart closer to him. All of your sins have been paid for. He's not trying to get payment for your sins from you. It's been done on the cross. And it brought freedom, thinking of that. There is therefore now no condemnation uh, for those that are in Christ Jesus. And uh, that's the penalty of sin. And then there's the power of sin he's setting us free from. So that has to do with the present. Penalty of sin, past. The power of sin is the present. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. No one sins because they have to, but because they want to. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. That's why we sin. And the promise enslaves us until we fully realize that Christ is more desirable and satisfying than anything in this world. And so, uh, which, which means the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of, of God's promise. And, um, and so the greatest motivation for not continuing in sin is the blood of Christ, because when you realize what he's done for you, sin is a, a trampling on not only his love and wisdom, his law, that comes to us out of his love and wisdom, but it's a, it's a trampling on the blood of Christ. It is a dagger to the heart of God. Sin is saying to God, you don't satisfy me. I just want to be bitter here about what these people did to me because you don't satisfy me. That would be one example of many of how we hang on to our sin. Or no, I would rather just worry about all the circumstances of my life. Well, that's sin. And you're telling him... He doesn't satisfy you. He doesn't have the basis covered. He doesn't love you. That's what you're saying to him. And um, see, holiness is being so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. And then he sets us free from the presence of sin. That's future. That's in heaven. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and everything bad will come untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been lost Let's prepare our hearts for communion here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? If you are here and you've never made a confession of faith, you've never given your life to Jesus, man, this would be a good time to do that. And you do that by acknowledging your sin that separates you from God, believing that that Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins, and then confessing him as Savior and Lord, giving your life to him. Father God, intimacy with you is a blood-bought gift from you through the indispensable and costly death of your son for all who repent and believe in him. But to maintain and grow that intimacy with you, we need to walk in the light. You are light and love. Your light exposes our darkness, but your blood cleanses us from all darkness. So we pray this morning in preparing our hearts for communion, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts, our anxious thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.